You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast, the politics podcast from the News and Observer. I'm Lauren Horsch and I'm joined here today with Colin Campbell, Andy Spay, and Will Doran. And well, we had some exciting times this week here in Raleigh on Jones Street. Uh, we had a short session, and by short session, I mean it lasted about nine to ten hours. Uh, passed a couple of bills, and we've been diving into some campaign cash. And to get it started, I'm going to throw it over to Colin to tell us what this uh, short extra session was all about. Well, I guess we can't talk about it too much in the past tense because they're still uh, in session technically. Well, um, technically, they're not voting on anything anymore. Yeah, it's right all now. skeletals uh, until the probably inevitable veto from Governor Roy Cooper, and then they have to come back and override that. Uh, so that'll happen, oh, in under. Eight days, I guess, as we I know. do believe the deadline for the vetoes, the vetoes, because there were two bills, um, is August 4th, or at least that's what I'm hearing from Republicans. So, Yeah, so um, that's kind of where we're at now. And um, the two bills that are on the governor's desk out of this uh, special session uh, one-day extravaganza that uh, came out kind of uh, out of surprise, um, it was first called for, I think, on... Last Saturday, in a letter from uh, Representative David Lewis, the House Rules Chairman, to the House Speaker, who was concerned about uh, the process for writing ballot captions by the Constitutional Amendments Publication Commission, the uh, obscure state committee you've never heard of uh, that is now in the spotlight, which consists of Secretary of State Elaine Marshall and Attorney General Josh Stein, both of whom are Democrats, as well as uh, Paul Coble, the Legislative Services Officer, who's a Republican. Lewis was concerned that the uh, commission's uh, captions, which had not been written yet and had not started uh, having meetings for writing them, uh, were going to be too politicized. He didn't really give any examples of why. Um, other uh, Republicans in the legislature appeared to agree. So as of uh, Monday at about oh, 01 or 2 o'clock uh, in the afternoon, uh, they called a special session for uh, Tuesday, the following day at noon, uh, came all back to Raleigh. Some people cut off their vacations and just rushed onto the Capitol to uh, take this up, and the ultimate resolution was that where the ballot captions uh, on the ballot were going to be written by the Constitutional Amendments Publication Commission, it's now just going to be a line that says Constitutional Amendments. But doesn't the ballot already label these these Constitutional Amendments? There's six of them. Don't they already label them as Constitutional Amendments? Yeah, so there's amendments? a cluster on the ballot um, of these amendment questions, and at the beginning of the cluster, it'll say Constitutional Amendments, and then on each question, it'll say, do you support a constitutional amendment to, and then explains you know, what the uh, amendment would do. Uh, so now you're going to get to see the phrase constitutional amendments two or three times per question. Lest you forget it's a constitutional amendment, there will be plenty of reminders, uh, but you won't get uh, to see whatever explanation that uh, the uh, commission was going to come up with. But isn't the commission, so the commission is meeting on July 31st, next Tuesday or Wednesday? I don't remember what day of the week that is but are they still there's they're still writing some stuff for these constitutional amendments can you kind of explain what they're writing yeah so they're uh, going to be writing something that uh, could potentially go in a state voters guide but also will go in informational materials uh, available at the polling place for people who uh, want to get some more uh, information about uh, what these amendments do so that'll be more of a long-form thing and that's what the uh, commission has done uh, ever since the early 80s when the commission was created uh, this ability to write something for the ballot itself was sort of a new power uh, that came up uh, two years ago uh, in a 2016 bill, got very little attention at the time, 
Uh, no one seems to have been able to explain to me why they gave them this power in this bill. Um, all I can assume is 2016 was an election year. Uh, there were Republicans running against uh, both the current uh, Secretary of State and also for the Office of Attorney General, and I guess people thought uh, they would be winning those races because otherwise uh, they might have uh, avoided giving this commission this power in the first place. Um, but uh, now, as uh, if once this bill becomes law, uh, we'll be back to what this commission did back in the day, and they're holding their meeting, I guess, next week to uh, discuss uh, how that's going to go down and what uh, language they're going to use. Well, it's kind of funny, during the, the floor speeches about this, you heard several Republicans uh, defend these changes, saying, well, we don't need this outside group telling us, you know, what we should, you know, be doing with pieces of legislation, seemingly forgetting that they were the ones who had given that outside group the power and authority to do that not even two years ago. Yeah, it definitely seemed like this whole session was a, uh, let's clean up the mess we made because we didn't want these to be the consequences of uh, actions we did, because of course the other bill is the uh, judicial uh, candidacy bill that uh, we also wrote about. Um, yeah, and you're exactly right. That was just cleaning up, like you said, cleaning up messes from previous uh, judicial actions. Uh, so basically the background on that is we've got a, a seat up for the Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court this year. Unlike the federal Supreme Court, we elect those judges here in North Carolina. And uh, earlier, uh, both uh, in 2017 and earlier in 2018, legislatures made a number of changes, kind of tweaking how that election was going to happen. They made it a partisan election for the first time since the early 2000s, and then they also canceled the primaries uh, for all of the judicial races. And um, what ended up happening was the Democrats put forward their favorite candidate, who is uh, Durham civil rights attorney Anita Earls. The Republicans have their favorite candidate, who is the incumbent on the court right now. Her name is Barbara Jackson. She's won seven associate justices. And then a third surprise candidate entered the race kind of at the last minute, uh, a man by the name of Chris Anglin, who's a Raleigh attorney. Um, and he entered as a Republican. The catch is that he was a registered Democrat up until just a couple days before he registered to run as a Republican. His campaign is being managed by a longtime Democratic operative uh, named Perry Woods uh, from here in Raleigh. And so a lot of Republicans and other people think that, oh, maybe Mr. Anglin's campaign is really just kind of a a trick or something yeah, by Democrat the Democrats. Plant was the mm -hmm. phrase used in the NCGOP's press release. Exactly. Uh, also, the enemy is what uh, Dallas Woodhouse has called him, the, the GOP. Um, and so what they did is uh, come back on Tuesday and pass a, a new law, assuming that it gets passed into law over Roy Cooper's veto or if Cooper signs it, that uh, Anglin won't be able to have his party affiliation listed next to his name on the ballot. Um like I said earlier, this was going to be the first election in a long time that anyone for Supreme Court had their party affiliation listed on the ballot. Um, but now, since there were going to be two Republicans listed and the Republicans really wanted Barbara Jackson to win since she was the Republican choice, they passed this new law that uh, said, essentially, if, if you changed parties within 90 days of the election, then you don't get to have your party listed on the ballot. Um, basically, the don't let Chris Anglin have his, you know, GOP affiliation on the ballot law. And, and Chris Anglin did get a lot of the, the attention on the floor debates, I think, in both the House and the Senate. 
But do do we know how many other judicial races this impacts? That was not a question any of the legislators could answer when it came up on Tuesday. Um, apparently, no one had done the research into that, and they I don't believe they'd asked anybody from the Board of Elections to come and attempt to answer those questions. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, no one was there when they asked in committee. Yeah. Uh, so I actually asked uh, yesterday on Wednesday, the day after the session, and the State Board of Elections was able to generate me a list of, I think it was about a total of four or five candidates uh, most of them, other than Anglin, were uh, simply candidates for uh, district court judge. There was one for superior court judge. Um, and I think there was one in Mecklenburg who was a situation where they had, kind of like Anglin, been a Democrat, switched to Republican. Uh, there was a situation in Wake where I actually talked to the judge uh, or the uh, judicial candidate who is a uh, former Republican who switched to Democrat. So she would be uh, listed as nothing on the ballot um, if this comes to pass. She told me she plans to still run anyway and, and believes in, in nonpartisan elections. Uh, and then there were a couple where they were switching from um, either Democrat or Republican to unaffiliated. Um, and they would also be listed, uh, if this passes, uh, as nothing. Uh, not caught up in this bill are a couple of uh, other uh, situations where there are multiple uh, Republicans in the race or people running as Republicans for NC Court of Appeals, the situations where you have one Democrat and two Republicans, which could make things harder for uh, either of the Republicans to win. That did not get affected by this because those were folks who had uh, been registered with their party for more than 90 days. Right. And, and of course, this is all only happening because we don't have judicial primaries this year anyways, which was a new law passed in March. Earlier yeah. This year. And there was an effort actually after that cancellation uh, by Democrats, I think, to uh, include on the ballot which candidate had been endorsed by the state parties. Um, Republicans uh, declined to include that uh, piece of the law. And I guess regretted they did that because uh, they're concerned that uh, people would be misled um, with the way the ballot's structured now and, and vote for somebody who's uh, not really backed by the Republican Party. Exactly. And we should note that uh, Chris Anglin has denied everything the Republicans are saying about him. He says he's a legitimate conservative candidate and he's not there, you know, to to basically throw the race for Anita Earls, which is what the Republicans say yeah. that he's there for. He says he is a constitutional conservative who believes in a separation of powers and doesn't think that the legislature has done a good job of that, and so he wants to be a check of the legislature on the state court. So Yes, and uh, that uh, conflicts pretty strongly with the statement by, I think it was Senator Jerry Tillman who said he was uh, to the, or I think he was talking about Anita Earls being to the left of Hubert Humphrey, uh, I may have also been referring to, to Anglin. I'm not, not positive, but uh, it's always good to get a good Hubert Humphrey reference into legislative debate. There, there's Thereby not many. confusing there's... those of us who were not born when Hubert Humphrey was a thing. Indeed. Well, there's, there was one little other quirk to this, this extra session, and it was really kind of why it was called. And, and some people have said it was because longtime, you know, bill drafting division director Jerry Cohen had tweeted out his suggestions for the captions. And now note that these captions could be suggested by anyone. He's a private citizen, and the commission is asking for these captions to be suggested. And I think Phil Berger, correct? Yeah, Actually, he, he confirmed it uh, when he was talking to reporters. Um, you know, we were really trying to get at this argument Republicans were making that uh, the commission had politicized the process, that they were pay facing pressure from Democrats uh, to write these in a way that would uh, perhaps prejudice voters uh, against uh, supporting the con constitutional amendments, um, but none of them were able to provide any examples of who in the Democratic Party was putting pressure on, uh, what, in what way did any members of the commission indicate uh, what sort of uh, captions they intended to write. Um, but instead, uh, the timing we noticed of the um, 
call to session came a day after uh, a little Twitter spat between Jerry Cohen, the former head of bill drafting, who's now a, a sort of active uh, voice in, in state politics, and Brent Woodcox, who's an attorney for legislative Republicans and also an active voice on Twitter on the right, uh, were arguing over uh, Jerry's submissions uh, of what he thought the uh, captions should look like. Um, and so we asked Berger, you know, was this what Jerry Cohen tweeted uh, that prompted all this? And, and Senator Berger basically said, you know, that was something we were aware of, that uh, they were particularly concerned by the reaction uh, on the left from some prominent uh, Democrats to uh, what uh, Cohen had um, proposed. Uh, and that appeared to be a reference to some tweets by uh, House Democratic leader Jer uh, Darren Jackson, who uh, tweeted out that he supported the uh, language that Cohen was proposing. Uh, mm -hmm. So that seems to be the full extent of that. Uh, so, of course, uh, Jerry Cohen is being uh, either blasted or uh, praised on Twitter he's for having a, the power to... Um, he's had a very good week on Twitter. Yeah, right? for, there's been some good jokes. Someone proposed in the press room, a journalist proposed that Jerry Cohen and Chris Anglin create a new law firm and call it Troublemakers. Um, there's a this session was Jerry mandated joke. There's been all sorts of yeah. Just... I mean, I do have to wonder: is this the only time? And and perhaps Jerry himself, the historian that he is, could answer this question: Is this the first time the actions of two largely unknown men in state politics prompted an entire special session of the legislature? Well, and he pointed out on Twitter also he he was kind of giving a lot of snark about this and said, look, I've been friends with Elaine Marshall for 50 years. If I wanted to slip her secret suggestions for how to caption these things, I'd just call her up and tell her. I wouldn't tweet it publicly. Yeah. Well, and, and, and going back to this political scheming or trying to leak, I do believe Senator Harry Brown said that the caption wording is being leaked. Um, I requested a bunch of emails from Elaine Marshall and Attorney General Josh Stein to see if they were leaking or if they were conspiring and... Sorry to say, guys, I got nothing. These were the most boring emails I've read, and it was all about scheduling a meeting. Yeah, I'm, and speaking I'm of sorry. scheduling, there was uh, a complaint brought up by Republicans that they thought that the commission had been dragging its feet on this because the, uh, I guess the amendments were passed in late June. The meeting for the first meeting of the commission scheduled for the 31st with a couple uh, weeks advance notice for people to provide comment, and then the deadline to get stuff to the Board of Elections is, I believe, the week of August 6th. Um, so, Lauren, you looked into the... Um, timing the meetings, uh, were, were they making effort early in July were, to start yeah, this meeting process? I, I, you know, on July 5th, Elaine Marshall, who is the chair of the Constitutional Amendments Publication Commission, got an email from the State Board of Elections and Ethics saying, you know, we, we need these by August 8th. Like, that is the drop-dead date to get these short captions. Uh, and so on July 6th, she sent out an email asking for dates of when everyone was available. And there wasn't like a complete consensus. And the most times that they had between, I think it was July 11th was the first date they could have met. And the last date was August 3rd. The most people had was, you know, July 31st through August 4th. Because while the main meeting is scheduled for the 31st, they need a couple of extra days just in case there's no consensus. So it was just that it happened that all three of them were available those days, but she was working on it early in the month. And, you know, after those allegations in David Lewis's letter, she even shot back her own letter and she was like, I am not politicizing this. Like I am doing my job. Yeah. She's been pretty so, strongly outspoken about uh, her role in this and her uh, intentions to well, ensure a, you know, nonpartisan, purely informational process. Well, Cause for she's done like. this before. Like she's, she's been the secretary of state for how long she she's been on this commission for years, decades. I don't remember how long she's been here, but she's done this before. She's, she's written captions for quite a long time. So yeah. 
<laughs> that's really it for Elaine Marshall. Um, but, you know, moving away from the General Assembly, we're going to talk a little bit about the General Assembly races in November. Um, I think we've all taken a little bit of look at, you know, what kind of money is flowing in into the campaigns. Um, so, Andy, I think you specifically took a look at some of the races where Democrats could potentially flip Republican seats. Right. And so we looked at how much money each individual uh, candidate had on hand after the second quarter of fundraising. And uh, there was we picked 10. There's more than that. Uh, but we picked 10 uh, that we considered to be uh, the most uh, vulnerable incumbent Republic, Republican districts. Um, and at the top of the list are Tamara Banger and uh, Johnny Mac Alexander here in Wake County. They trail their opponents, who are uh, Sam Searcy and Mac Paul, by about $300,000 a piece, if I remember correctly. It's it's 260 280 I can't remember which. But uh, they're really far behind. And so, uh, you know, the leaders of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party have... Uh, extra, they have extra money that will that they'll use to help people in some cases, but there are going to be some tough questions um, that they'll have to answer. Which is, you know, how much do we invest in someone like Tamara Banger if it looks like she her chance is already almost gone? You know, do you, do you throw you know good money after bad or bad money after good, whatever the saying is. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see uh, just how much they'll help her. Um, others on the list were uh, Tom, Tom McGinnis? Tom McGinnis, yeah. And uh, Senator uh, Jeff Tart out near Charlotte, as well as, um, I don't have the list in front of me, but uh, a lot of people you would suspect, especially in the urban areas around uh, Greensboro, Raleigh, and Charlotte. So it was interesting. Um, they Almost no one is as in bad as bad of a hole as uh Beringer and alexander but um we'll see we'll see how it goes and there and there are other competitive districts i know the insider team myself and colin had looked at some of that so i mean w- what other competitive races are we yeah looking at? so we sort of built off of uh the reporting andy already did uh on some of the uh races where uh, republicans look vulnerable and we tried to look at um, the various races that uh, have been categorized uh, through some of the uh, review of past election data by the NC Free Enterprise Foundation as either competitive, lean Democratic, and lean Republican. And uh, we tried to play a little bit of uh, fantasy politics speculation by uh, looking at if you won an election purely by a campaign cash advantage, who had more money, um, what would the outcome look like based on uh, the campaign cash as of June 30th? Um, and we found that Democrats actually have a strong shot by that metric at breaking the veto-proof majority of Republicans in the House, uh, but they'd be unlikely to take the majority outright, and they could fall slightly short of breaking the GOP's majority, supermajority uh, over into the Senate. So uh, of the 27 House races that were in one of those three uh, categories by the Free Enterprise Foundation, we found that uh, Republicans had more cash on hand in 12 of them, uh, while Republicans had the cash advantage in 12. And then of the other uh, couple in that category, uh, there were um, not numbers available yet for at least one of the campaign, but each of those uh, three, I think, uh, that were left out of that uh, category were uh, featuring a strong Democratic incumbent. So uh, what does that mean for exactly which races are likely to flip by that metric? Um, it's the 
Uh, one's currently held by Representatives John Sauls, a Republican from Lee County, Steve Ross, Republican from Alamance County, uh, Mike Clampett, Republican from Swain County, Linda Hunt Williams, Republican from Wake. Uh, she's retiring, but there's another Republican running for the seat. Uh, Bob Steinberg, of, uh, a Republican from Chowan County, who's also trying to move over to the Senate, uh, but his uh, empty seat is uh, quite competitive. Um, and then there are a couple, uh, there's also two more Republicans on that list, uh, Jonathan Jordan, Republican of Ashe County, and Andy Doolin, Republican from from Mecklenburg County. I'll say, from what I heard, uh, Republicans in, in general that I've spoken with the last couple of weeks were most surprised at the deficits um, that Doolin has and that Brawley has. Uh, Bill yeah. Brawley, not considered yeah. a competitive well, district. Strong ditch Republican in that uh, metric, And we also have to, we have to factor in the fact that Brawley has been sick and he's been out and hasn't been able to campaign. He did have um, a cancer scare and he had some he had something removed from underneath his eye I forget which it was so he had, he was out of the campaign game for a while and I think he thinks he can make some of that up once the general assembly yeah. goes home and, and part of the struggle for him is he's running against uh, Rachel Hunt who is the daughter of former Governor Jim Hunt so uh, she may have more of a fundraising prowess than uh, you would see from some of the other um, more uh, upstart campaigns that are out there because, uh, yeah, that's a district that's rated strong Republican, so I didn't include that in the numbers. Uh, but he's one of three districts rated strong Republican that uh, in the numbers that uh, Andy ran uh, showed fundraising advantages for Democrats. The other two were uh, John Faircloth's district in Guilford County. He's a Republican, as well as the district uh, currently held by Beverly Boswell out in Dare County. She lost her primary, but there is a, both a Republican and a Democrat in that race. Right. Um, and then wanted to touch on the Senate stuff as well. Um, that features a total of 16 races in those uh, three categories for uh, sort of competitive nature. And of those, Republicans have more money on hand in seven of the races, while Democrats are leading in fundraising in six. And three others feature a candidate uh, whose filings weren't received by the board when we uh, reported this. Um, so if the fundraising advantage there uh, determines the election outcome, you get five Republican-held seats that flip to Democrats, uh, while the GOP holds on to its other seats without flipping any other districts. Of course, Five is just short of the six seats, I understand, that uh, would uh, need to flip to uh, Democrats to take away the Republican supermajority in the Senate. And those uh, uh, GOP-held districts uh, with Democrats leading are, as uh, Andy mentioned, John Alexander, Tamara Beringer in Wake County, Tom McGinnis, Richmond County, uh, Jeff Tart in Mecklenburg County, and then the seat that um, uh, currently held by Bill Cook of Beaufort County. Uh, but that's the one where Representative Bob Steinberg is running to replace Cook. Uh, so that's kind of where we're at uh, with with those races and the uh, fantasy politics game of uh, what if it were all about money? Uh, who would win? <laughs> I, I think you rightly pointed out that uh, the districts uh, without incumbents that were that are held by Republicans or were recently held by Republicans until the maps were redrawn uh, are Linda Hunt Williams and Steinberg, which you said, and now who's trying to get to the Senate. And then Beverly Boswell, I thought it was, I wanted to jump in and say, yeah, her, she, you know, isn't retiring or, you know, uh, or switching districts. She was beaten, but in her own, uh, di primary, uh, and her opponent now has, uh, almost $8,000 in debt from that race. Yeah, that's and the Curry Tuck County Commission chairman, I believe. That's right. His name is Bobby Hannig. And uh, he, uh, that's what he, you know, he's $7,900 in debt. And he faces Tess Judge. And Tess Judge um, was married, uh, I forget her husband's name, but he ran against Boswell in the last election and uh, died shortly before it happened. Uh, but she's been out there uh, raising up to uh, 
almost eighty thousand dollars. Because so didn't she, sorry to jump in there, but didn't right. after her husband died in the last election, she would have been appointed to his seat. Isn't That's that right. how that yeah, works? Yeah. So she yeah. yeah, so she's been a name, you know, in that district for right. some while, for a time now. Right. So while, you know, we might not have them on incumbents who are vulnerable on on, on that list. Um, those are Republican-held seats that uh, are definitely vulnerable, even though the incumbent isn't in them anymore. Anyway. Well, uh, one person who won't have to worry about uh, raising campaign funds anymore is a Democrat in Alamance County, correct, Andy? That's right. Because <laughs> uh, uh, we have someone who dropped out this week, and you'll find out why from Andy. <laughs> so Kathy Von Hassel Davies is her name. And she was a Democrat uh, from Alamance County in her district. She was going to run against Dennis Riddell or Rydell? Riddell. 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 Yeah. I, I've uh, written about him. I should know how to pronounce his name. I'm sorry, Dennis. For journalists, we know how to spell their name, but we don't know how to say it. That's right. Uh, anyway, last week, um, it an old blog post of hers emerged from the interwebs. And uh, it did not look so well for her or the Democratic Party, which uh, claims to be uh, supporters of immigrants. What was her blog called, Andy? It was called, the headline of it said, Ranting and Ravings of Perhaps a Lunatic. No, for it, for it, our it, listeners out there, I got to say that this is an old school blog spot blog. And there's a lot of purple and pink, but continue, this Andy. This is a podcast. I'm going to say verbatim what she said. So uh, she and her blog has this disclaimer. Warning, this post may contain curse words. If you are not prepared to be offended, don't read. Uh, and she said it is a long blog post. But the highlights are, quote, do they not know the wor- what the word illegal means? Oh, you know what? They might not, since the U.S. bends over backwards to kiss their effing ass and spends how much of our tax dollars putting up signs in Spanish and American. Is American a language fact check? Uh, it is not. No. <laughs> uh, it goes on. Oh, quote, okay, we live in effing America, people. We speak English, the blog said. Uh, the Democratic Party came out and distanced themselves from her, saying this was last week, saying that her views did not represent uh, the party's views. Uh, they apparently gave her a week to uh, make amends and try to connect with the local Hispanic community, uh, according to Wayne, Wayne Goodwin, the chairman of the uh, North Carolina Democratic Party. Uh, he put out a statement saying that uh, they had several conversations uh, last week with uh, the Hispanic community and Hispanic caucus and other members of that district, which it, Alamance County, it's sort of uh, the west side, closer to Greensboro and um, a little bit on the south, south of Burlington, and uh, that uh, she didn't restore trust with the community. So that's why it, it appears to be somewhat of a mutual breakup between Kathy uh, Von Hassel Davies and the Democratic Party. Uh, she was trailing uh, Dennis Riddell in fundraising. Um, just throw that fact out there. So she wasn't necessarily ahead of the game. Yeah, that probably uh, I don't think is a super competitive district either. It, it's not supposed to be, but um, the Democrats can replace her so long as uh, the Alamance County Democratic Party uh, appoints someone and go and she withdraws through the formal processes by August 8th and they choose a replacement by August 8th that 
replacement candidate's name will be on the ballot and not um, Kathy Von Von Hassel Davies. So uh, there's still hope for them, uh, even though um, they're sort of set back. They've gone from 170 candidates, one in each district, to 169 for the time being. But um, that's where they are, down one candidate. Well, and uh, one story that got a little bit lost, I would say, just because of the craziness of the session was Colin's story on like an update on Hurricane Matthew relief. So what's uh, what's the new news there? Yeah, so we got some updated numbers. You know, there, remember from a couple months back, there was some uh, anger among state legislators at the Cooper administration about the pace um, of the spending of federal dollars to help folks uh, impacted by Hurricane Matthew, which is now uh, we're coming not too far from the two-year anniversary of the storm back in October 2016. Um, and the, the big concern has centered around uh, about $236 million of federal money. I think there's even more on top of that now in the last couple months um, from what's known as a CDBG, Community Development Block Grant uh fund uh, to help people uh, essentially rebuild their homes. Um, And none of that money had been spent back in April, which lawmakers were very upset about. So we asked to see if the money had been spent uh, this time around. And uh, no projects that are using the funds have been completed as of yet, according to NC Emergency Management. Uh, But they did stress to me that they've been making progress with the money. Uh, The environmental reviews are now in for uh, some of the counties affected, uh, which is sort of a a needed first step to get through some of the federal red tape on this. Um, And there's uh, about 1,900 applications, almost 2,000 applications uh, received. The state set up some application centers to uh, help people go through the process. Uh, But a lot of people are still in the first or one or two steps of what's essentially an eight-step process of establishing, you know, whether you qualify for the money, what you're going to use it for, um, that sort of thing. So that all uh, still needs to be done. And so uh, there's a lot of, uh, I think, continuing uh, concern from lawmakers, most notably from uh, Representative Brendan Jones, who's a Republican from down in Columbus County, which is one of the counties affected. Um, and he asked uh, a couple of weeks ago for House Speaker Tim Moore to reinstate a, a legislative oversight committee in the House uh, looking at disaster relief. Uh, and uh, on Monday of this week, uh, as we were all preparing for the special session, uh, Tim Moore announced that they would be uh, reinstating that committee. So uh, Jones has been uh, sending some questions to the Cooper administration uh, about the uh, trying to get some more information about the state of uh, some of these programs uh, right now, and uh, they should be holding meetings uh, probably in the next couple of weeks um, to discuss that and um, get some, uh, hopefully some, I guess, some pressure on uh, to, to make more of that happen. But the Cooper administration has been pretty uh, defensive about this, pointing that they've, uh, they've been doing a lot to uh, move through this process, but that it is a slow process. I think the governor was actually uh, down east this week in the Kinston area, uh, touring one of the uh, recovery application centers and encouraging more people to apply. So uh, stuff is happening, just not quite as fast as uh, a lot of folks would like. Well, there's our, you know, every couple of months updates on Hurricane Matthew relief. Um, so hopefully we get some more good news for people down east. Yeah, I mean, at some point soon I'm going to try to travel down there myself and see where things stand. So we'll, we'll keep reporting on that uh, as long as it continues to be an issue. And with that, we'll take a short break and come back with your headliner of the week. Headliner of the week, 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 headliner of the week. Who's hot? Welcome back to Dumbcast, the NNO's political podcast. Um, and I'm just going to jump right into it. We're going to get ready for a headliner of the week, and I'm going to start with Will. All right. My headliner is uh, 
Tim Jacobs and the Tuscarora Nation. Uh, this is a group of Native Americans down in Robeson County um, who uh, were recently the subject of a massive uh police raid essentially on their compound down there they are a group of sovereign citizens who don't really um, recognize that the government has authority over them and to regulate them and all that um, and the there were like 200 police officers uh, recently who raided their property down in Robeson County um, which is just one of the wildest counties in North Carolina it, it's True. It's just true. long-standing, massive corruption and crazy stories. If, if you hear of some insane-sounding thing from North Carolina, it's probably coming out of It's like the Florida of North Carolina. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but there were, like I said, there were 200 state and I believe also federal law enforcement officers who busted them up and said that they found uh, like an illegal police force and secret casinos with all of these illicit gambling operations going on and things like that. So obviously these are still allegations at this point. Um, but Tim Jacobs actually, this is not his first time uh, in the news in the, I think he was in the late 80s, maybe like 1989. Uh, he and another uh, Native American down there named Eddie Hatcher actually took over the Robesonian newspaper and held the staff hostage um, and got into a standoff. For how long? Uh, I don't remember. Uh, maybe like less than a day. I don't think it was too long. But, you know, they busted. <laughs> so they probably still got the paper out, it y'all. It wasn't too bad. Right. Important so, you know, but they, you know, they busted with shotguns and held the newspaper hostage. And um, it turns out that they were actually right. They thought that the newspaper should be writing about all of the corruption going on in local law enforcement. And... A few years later, like the sheriff and a ton of deputies went to jail for all of this corruption. So, mm-hmm. while they were correct, that is not the best way the, to get the, the press to The means do not justify us. the end. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you can just call us up, uh, leave an anonymous tip, either on our email or on our phone lines. You don't need to come down here and hold yes. us hostage, just for the record. Dome at newsobserver.com is our yes, email address. that is the <laughs> preferred way of getting our attention. Um, but... Um, yeah, they um, they actually, uh, Eddie Hatcher ended up uh, getting off a trial. He represented himself and convinced the people of Robeson County that they didn't really do anything wrong. Um, although he later did die in prison for a different crime that he had been convicted of. Um, but Jacobs is out and is leading this band of uh, Tuscaroras. And now he has another uh, brush with law enforcement. And I am sure it will be anything but dull as this case progresses. So... I'm excited to follow that. Sorry for the long headline. Um, okay. Well, Tim Jacobs and his merry band of sovereign citizens in the hat. Andy, try and follow that up. Yeah. Uh, I guess I, I can't really, but I'm going to go with humans uh, and follow me here. Humans who cause climate change and said climate change is causing sea level rise. And that sea level rise has already uh caused North Carolina homes to lose about, survey says, uh, $582 million in property value uh, in recent years. Uh, since 2005, uh, the story on our website, the headline is, sea level rise has already sunk Carolina's beach property values by $1.6 billion. It's by Abby Bennett, uh, one of our uh, real-time reporters who does excellent work on the climate, um, climate change and how it affects North Carolina. Uh, the story says that uh, flooding and 
just the general threat of hurricanes and uh, sea level rise has affected property values along the coast, the Outer Banks. Uh, and in North Carolina, that means a loss of uh, $582 million, which, you know, I, I think a lot of people are still looking for de- definitive proof of, uh, maybe not a lot, a fringe group, a certain group is looking for definitive proof of sea level or of uh, climate change. And I, I think there's uh, real evidence here in uh, property value. So for that, I say humans causing climate change, causing sea level rise, causing a decrease in property values. Of, yeah, it's a lot of writing for me. I'm not going to win, but, <laughs> you know, I just want to get that out there. Well, humans creating climate change that create sea level rise that impact uh, property values that's, on shoreline. That's right. It's To be clear, it's 81,900 properties. That's a lot of properties in North Carolina. Yeah, yes. and I've, I've seen some of these. We, uh, My wife and I vacation on uh, the north end of Topsail Island sometimes, and there's a uh, row of houses that's barely protected by sandbags. It looks like they're about to fall into the ocean, and apparently not that long ago, those were the second row houses. Uh, in the condo complex we stay in, uh, there's actually no beach in front of it, uh, so if you get a room with a balcony, you can fish off your balcony directly into the ocean. So uh, uh, that's all sort of concrete evidence that something's going on. Oh, Lordy. Uh, so causer, maybe more succinct would be causers of climate change and sea level rise. That's my headliner. Okay. I'm still going to just say humans, I man. know. I know. I'm losing <laughs> the will at this point. Colin, what do you got for us? All right. Well, I want to go back to the uh, subject of, uh, of gambling for a moment. Um, and my pick this week is uh, gambling alpaca farmers. Oh, what? Uh, <laughs> this How is do a- you what? This is a story I wrote uh, about a week or so ago about a campaign finance complaint that was filed against uh, Court of Appeals Judge Phil Berger Jr. You may know him from his father's name, Phil Berger Sr., who is the Senate leader. Um, Anyway, uh, Bob Hall, who's sort of a longtime campaign finance watchdog sort of guy, uh, filed this complaint. And uh, there are several details of it that are um, not as exciting as the alpaca farmers. One is that uh, some folks uh, who... Uh, were listed in his campaign reports as donors claimed they had actually didn't donate to his campaign. Uh, there's also uh, an allegation in this report uh, that says that uh, he didn't properly disclose who paid for the food and drink uh, and other expenses related to some of his uh, campaign fundraising events. Uh, but the detail that I kind of zoomed in on uh, as I was um, looking for exciting uh, aspects of, of this uh, sort of wonky campaign finance report uh, was that Hall is uh, saying that um, there were donations made to Phil Berger Jr.'s campaign from a Maurice and Mary Rayner of Pittsburgh, who were among his uh, biggest donors of the campaign. Uh, and they're listed in the report as the owners of M&M Alpaca Farm. Uh, but Hall argues in his complaint that they should have been listed as the president and vice president of Starlight's Tech Corporation, which operates internet sweepstakes parlors in Rockingham County, uh, where Berger used to be the district attorney. Uh, Hall notes that uh, when Berger was the district attorney, which was well before he campaigned for Court of Appeals, um, he had been uh, told, uh, according to reports, told police to hold off on uh, going after some enforcement issues with the Internet sweepstakes parlors, which have been uh, ruled uh, illegal by the legislature a couple of times in, in North Carolina. Uh, so Hall is saying that because of uh, that, that sort of backstory uh, and the fact that some of the uh, sweepstakes parlors were actually being uh, shut down and the subject of some uh, legal action around the time of uh, Berger's campaign for Court of Appeals, that uh, those folks should have been listed not as alpaca farmers, but as the owners of a gambling business, uh, which was also their business. So I'm uh, not sure what will uh, come out of that complaint if any action will be taken. I think it's uh, still under investigation. But uh, since you don't see it too often in uh, campaign finance complaints, 
My pick is gambling alpaca farmers. So I have a question. Was the alpaca farm the side hustle or the sweepstakes business the side hustle? I mean, I think that could be the central question here is, you know, you're, I think you're required to disclose your occupation on uh, campaign finance forms. Uh, so the question is, are you alpaca farmers who gamble on the side or are you gambling parlor owners who farm alpacas on the side? That's a lot of minutia. But, um... <laughs> Man, you guys are making it tough for me again. You can't even throw me as like. I know no one gave a Durham-based headline, so you're yeah. at a loss. Uh, well, <laughs> since I have a I have a weird soft spot for Robeson County because I read the Robesonian a lot, um, I'm gonna have to go with Will's headliner of the week, Tim Jacobs and his merry band of sovereign citizens. So with that, I'm Lauren Horsch for Will Doran, Andy Spay. Colin Campbell, thank you for listening to Domecast, and remember to read local. Have a good day. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com. 